page 853 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. I've certainly preached this psalm before, and I've preached this psalm before uh, here, since I have been here, uh, but I am taking a little bit of a different, different vantage point, obviously considering uh, worship and aspects of our worship, and so we will uh, consider this psalm once again tonight, beautiful psalm, Psalm 16. This is God's holy word, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is our final authority in faith and in life, inerrant, holy without error. Let us give our attention to its reading. Emiktam of David. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. God is king. Jesus Christ reigns right now at God's right hand with a reign that will never end, with a reign that will never be challenged, a reign that will never be overthrown. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. God, through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, will glorify himself and all the world will see his glory. And there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And from that point on into eternity, there will be nothing throughout all of creation, nothing but the ceaseless magnification of the glory of God. That is all objectively true. That is true whether human beings believe it or not. That is true whether human beings confess it or not, whether they assent to those truths or not. And yet, when we think about the glory of God and how God glorifies his name. And as we go to the scriptures, what we see is that God calls us again and again. He calls his people to confess him as the glorious one and to glorify him with our worship, to bring him our best, to pursue him, to acknowledge how much we need him. 
All of these things are tied up with how we think about worship. God will glorify himself whether one human being joins in or not. But God invites us into his mission of glorifying himself. And what we find in the scriptures is that God's glory is magnified the more that God's people rejoice in him. The more that God's people rest in him and recognize him as the one thing that they need. Exactly the God to whom they should bring their best. We know God in and through the gospel of Christ. And to know God is to love him. We cannot know God without truly loving him. When when our eyes are awakened to the truth of our sin and our condemnation, and yet Christ's sacrifice for us, his life for us, to, to know that truly and to grasp that is to love God in Christ. We cannot know God truly without loving him. We cannot love him truly without having lasting joy. For we have found the exact object for which our whole being longs. And that is the triune God of the universe. So as we consider worship together, we need to begin to see that that gathering together in, in the worship of God, as God's people gather together week after week, under the authority of Christ and under the authority of the church as we come together, we sing our praises. As we come together, we are educated through the liturgy, the things that we confess, and as we sit under the proclamation of the word of God. That's all part and parcel to how God is going is how he is glorifying himself in this world now and how he will glorify himself on the last day. As we considered last week, if we know God truly, we approach him with reverence. Right? There's, there's no choice in that. If you begin to grasp who God is, and you begin to know his holiness, and his righteousness, and his glory, and how he dwells in unapproachable light, if, if you uh, square with any of that, you're going to approach this God with reverence. We talked about uh, holy fear. And yet, as we realize what he has done for us in the gospel, And we realize how far he has gone to make us his own. What do we do? We rejoice in gladness. This is what eternity will be. Eternity will be the fullest existence and experience of knowledge and love and joy in God. We will know him fuller than we know him now. We will love him more fully. And we will rejoice in him more fully. But something that's important for us to realize about worship is that worship is a heavenly experience. It's a foretaste of what we will experience in eternity. For in eternity, what we will see is all of the people of God gathered together as one people, magnifying the glory of God and giving their best to him in a a creation that is without sin, without the curse, without the things that so easily plague and weigh us down. Jonathan Edwards said this, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God by which also God is magnified and exalted. God is magnified when we rejoice in him. God is exalted when we rejoice in him. And he is magnified and exalted when we do that with a true knowledge of him. That he is the God we must revere. He is the God before whom we bow in holy fear. So what we're going after is being joyful 
and being reverent. Having reverence and joy before the one true God as we bring our best to the one who deserves it most. So we focused mostly on reverence last week. We'll consider joy uh, tonight. Gravity and gladness, reverence and joy. Here's our central truth. True worshipers are filled with gladness to the degree to which they know, remember know is head, to the degree to which they know and rejoice, rejoice, that is heart, head and heart, The true worshipers are filled with gladness to the degree to which they know and rejoice in the truths that God is our security and our sufficiency and our satisfaction. Security, sufficiency, and satisfaction. Before we we dive into Psalm 16 and unpack that and and see how it, it moves us forward from gravity to gladness, from reverence to joy, head and heart, both united in the praise to God. Before we do that, I want to uh, tie up something that I talked about last week. Last week, we spoke about how God is the, the only proper object of our worship, right? Everything else is idolatry. If you're running after something else, you're giving your best to something else, that is making an idol in your heart. That is putting that in, in the throne of your heart. It's giving that the place that only God can have. And so when, when we start to unpack the truths of Scripture, we say that God is infinitely glorious and God is passionate for his own glory and God will see his name magnified and you have a phrase like God is for God. We hear that and it, it sounds like we're making God out to be an egomaniac. If we hear someone say, I am for myself, I am for the glory of me, We recoil at the selfishness, at at, at the self-interest that that person would have. So why is it different for God? Why can God be passionate about his glory? Why can God ultimately be for the exaltation and the magnifying of his name? There are uh, several thinkers that have done a lot of work in this area, probably the three most famous. Uh, Two of them have gone on to be with the Lord, Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis. And then third would be John Piper. And I, of course, as I mentioned last week, I stole this uh, sermon title, the sermon series from him, Gravity and Gladness, Head and Heart, Reverence and Joy. So how is God not an egomaniac when he is passionately enthralled with the magnification of his name, with the glorification of his name, the answer goes something like this. God and the glory of God is the only thing that can satisfy and fulfill every, every longing and every desire that we have. That's it. God made us for himself. We will not find rest until we rest in him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So God made us for himself and God and the glory of God is the only thing that can satisfy us in those ways. Since God knows that, and he does, he made us, he knows why he made us, he knows that the only thing that can satisfy us is himself and his glory. Since he knows that, he desires that we be enthralled with the desire to see his name magnified on the earth just as he desires the same. That's what God wants for us. He wants that we would join him on the mission of of the glory of his name. The good news is that God's glory 
and our joy are bound up together. God's glory and our good and our joy are bound up together. Let's consider the words of Jesus in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, this of course is the the high priestly prayer. This is the, the end of the Last Supper. Jesus is at the end of his life, about to go to the cross, about to give his life. He says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is saying, I came here to glorify the Father. I've done that. And then he says this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then he goes on to say later on in the chapter, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. The glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We see that the glory of God was central to what Jesus was doing. He came to earth to glorify God and to, to glorify his father and that he might be glorified as well. But we must take notice of how Jesus catches us up in this mission as well. He says, I desire that they would see my glory, those whom you have given me. In other words, part of what Jesus did is that he wanted us to join in this mission of glory and he wanted to take us to the place of glory and the enjoyment of his glory. Jesus desires to go back to be with the Father even though he has an enormously difficult road ahead of him at the cross but he's already looking beyond it to the glory that he will enjoy uh, once he is glorified and with his Father. And he says, I desire that they would be with me. I desire that they would see this glory and that they would love this glory and that they would be enthralled by this glory. He's bringing us to the one place that is satisfying to the soul, to where we truly long to be, whether we know it or not. And so to summarize it here, and we'll use the words of Pastor John Piper, he says this, why is God not an egomaniac? God is the only being for whom the exaltation of himself is the most loving thing he can do for us because he is the supremely beautiful and satisfying one. Say that again. God is the only being for whom the exaltation of himself, glorifying himself, is the most loving thing that he can do for us because he is the supremely beautiful and satisfying one. God knows that we will only be ultimately satisfied in him. And so he draws us to himself and he calls us to this mission of being passionate about his glory. And the worship of God is bound up with all of that. 
If it sounds like maybe uh, too, too subjective, it's not to negate the objective aspects of worship. The means of grace is, is central to all of this, right? The proclamation of the word and the sacraments and our prayers and our songs. All of those things, God, through the Spirit, uses all of those to shape and to form us into Christians who are living for his glory. And he does that whether we're feeling it or not. Whether we're having a good week or, or not, right? You come to church, maybe you don't really feel like being there, not really feeling like you want to sing the songs. Man, the pastor's praying for a long time. Boy, this sermon is boring. God is using the objective means of grace to sanctify you, right? So there's the objective, but then there is the subjective as well. That in the midst of that, even when we don't realize that the Spirit is, is working in us, that we would more and more be caught up into this grand vision of God, understanding that he is passionate for his glory, and that we too would be passionate for his glory. So I knew that would take a long time to trace that, and that's okay. We'll look then at Psalm 16 on how God is our security and our sufficiency and our satisfaction. So first, God is our security. The psalm begins with a request or a cry to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. By the way, I I may, as I'm preaching tonight, I may say what's different. It may say something different than our own translation. I have this kind of memorized in my head in the ESV translation. So if I do that, I'm sorry. It begins, it says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The context of when this psalm was written or the setting of this psalm was when David was ruling only over the tribe of Judah in Hebron. After Saul had died, but Saul's son, Ishbosheth, was reigning as king. So Saul is not fully and finally the king of Israel. He's been anointed. He went through all of those years where Saul was reigning as a bad king. David is going through the wilderness, all kinds of trials. And then Saul dies and Saul's son is immediately made king. But David is ruling over the tribe of Judah in Hebron. So it's a time of great uncertainty for David. He's unprotected. His life is unstable. And so it's significant to hear him say, in you I take refuge. There are several phrases in this psalm that speak of the the security that David finds in God. You hold my lot. The Lord is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My body will rest secure. You will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor let your Holy One see decay. See, the the progression is almost greater and greater proclamations of God's promises to David and his protection of him. So we ask, how are we to understand it? David obviously had great blessing upon his life. He was the anointed one of God, and yet even he died and was buried. That highlights something for us that we must keep in mind. Mentioned it a couple times in recent months. But it's important to have somewhat of a, of a road map when we come to the Psalms. Because when we come to the Psalms, we read them for our own devotional reading perhaps. We, we tend to uh, apply it to us before we a- apply it to the grand story of the history of the Bible. So we read Psalm 16, for instance, and we say... God will not let me see corruption. God will not abandon me to the grave. 
But when we do that, often what, what, what happens is that we make the Psalms out to be about our best life now, about increasing and enjoying earthly bliss. We found out this morning is to miss the point of Scripture. And so it is only in the resurrection of Christ and and through the lens of of Jesus that ultimately these promises make sense and these promises are sure. The Apostle Peter noticed this and he pointed it out at Pentecost. And Peter went to this exact psalm on the day of Pentecost to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim how the gospel of the glory of Christ and how he has ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, how now we have this grand new understanding of all of these promises. So I'm going to read a bit of this sermon from Peter and uh, we'll hear how he deals with it. He said this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, concerning Jesus... I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke in Psalm 16 about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So with that, we're reminded that the the Psalms, first and foremost, are a catalog of the experiences of Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God, while he was here on the earth. How is it that we are secure? Because we are in Christ. How is it that we know that God will not abandon us to the grave? How is it that we know that he will not let us see corruption and decay for the rest of eternity? Because he did not let Christ see corruption and decay, but he raised him up. This is why the doctrine of union with Christ, being united to the person of Christ, is so important. By the Spirit, we are united to Christ and we share in all of his benefits. Exactly what Christ earned, that is what he gives to us because we are united with him. And that is how we know that God will not abandon us to the grave. For we are united to him. And if we are united to him in a death like his, as Paul says, we will be united to him in a resurrection like his. So we bring that to worship. When we worship the living God, the only God. We are declaring that only in Christ can we find the security that we need. It's only in Jesus. We cannot find true security anywhere else. As the psalm says, we have no good apart from him. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
That's what we're declaring in worship. There is no good apart from the God of Scripture. Thus we set him always before us. And we give our best to the one who deserves it most. God is our security. And he shows us that he is so in Christ. And when we worship God, we're coming before him to say that this God and this God alone in his son Jesus Christ is the one in whom we will be secure. Secondly, God is our sufficiency. God is our sufficiency. In him we find what we need. Many psalms trace this theme. Psalm 42, for instance. Psalm 63 is another one that I think beautifully represents this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So to be satisfied, what does the psalmist do? He looks back to worship. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Beholds his glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as, my, as I live. I, in your name I will lift up my hands. Part of the Christian life is getting this truth deeply down into our hearts so that we know it, we remember it, and we treasure it even when we are not feeling it, even when we don't realize it, that we need God more than we know. We will always need him more, even more than we know. Of course we can't feel it all the time. Of course we don't feel like giving our best to the God who deserves it most. Of course, it's not always going to be filled with ease and I can't wait to get to church today. We're sinners. Of course, there will be days like that. Of course, you don't know exactly how badly you need him because we are blind to the depths about our own insufficiency. Verse 4, Psalm 16 reminds us of this. The sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. Right? Anyone who runs after anything else, what is it? It's a waste of time. Any engagement in idolatry of anything is a waste of time. The sorrows of those who run somewhere else, the sorrows of those will multiply. God says, I will not regard their offerings. I will not take their name on my lips. In doing so, in running after something else, our sorrows will only increase. And this also highlights the importance of worship taking place in the context of the worshiping, the believing community. We go through a week not really feeling it, not really looking forward to church, not really looking forward to worship. We're not willing to admit or acknowledge that we need God as much as we do. And that is where the aspect of the community really brings us along in that Because we all gather together knowing that none of us get it perfectly. None of us are standing before God clean and pure from the previous week. And so we all need each other to recognize in one another that we don't always desire God as we ought. You have a bad week. You look to your brother or sister for encouragement so that likewise you may do so for him or for her when he or she needs it. We read that our souls pant for him like a deer pants for streams of living water, but we don't really live it out all of the time. But we come to worship God, and the tug is greater because we're doing it together. Because God draws us to him as he draws us to each other. And the responsibility that we have towards one another to come and to worship God and to lift up our voices and our prayers, our petitions, and to give our best to the God who 
deserves it most. It's not purely emotions either. You notice David says, I bless Yahweh for he gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So there's a combination of head and heart in this psalm. What we know and rejoicing in what we know. You need truth. You need eternal truth. You need actual truth from God's word to make anything in worship real. To make it beneficial for you. And that's why the tendency that many have in the modern church to to dumb things down or to reject propositional truth is such a disaster. But truth also needs the vital love of a true worshiper, head and heart united. God gives me counsel, so I praise him. His word is with me when I'm lying in bed at night, and he instructs me. Education is part of worship. It's part of worship in in our liturgy, in our songs, and in our proclamation. Littered all throughout that needs to be our truth. It needs to be our doctrine. It needs to be that we are learning again and again, over and over again, these same truths and digging deeper into those truths that God would continue to shape and to form us. God is our sufficiency. And then leading finally to what we have been progressing towards tonight, that God is our satisfaction. This psalm, as it builds, is really getting to that point, to be satisfied in God, to take great joy and delight in God, to rejoice in him, to be filled with gladness. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Allow our minds to be shaped by that. No no good thing apart from God, because because he is at my right hand, right? Because Yahweh is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. If anyone else is at your right hand, the chances of you being shaken are great. In a series on worship, uh, John Piper points out that at times, you often find little glimpses of the glory of God sprinkled throughout various places of our culture, sometimes even uh, in advertising or in songs. He found one, and it was an advertisement for Nature Valley granola bars and they try to have a a branding that uh, is sort of centered on the outdoors there was a picture of an enormous mountain range um, and the the highest peak in that mountain range you could just barely make out that there were two people on the peak of it and they're, they're sort of waving holding up their hands you just see this vast mountain range huge breathtaking and then right at the highest peak there are two people standing there, looking out over all of it. And above the advertisement, it says, you've never felt more insignificant, and you've never felt more alive. You've never felt more insignificant, and you've never felt more alive. In other words, standing before something so beautiful, so enormous, so breathtaking, what's What do you instinctively feel? You feel that you're small and tiny. You feel that you're not important. You're just a tiny speck in the grand scheme of things. And and yet, as, as you take part in something so spectacular, you feel alive because you feel like it's, in some ways, it sweeps you up into the glory that it puts on display, the glory of its own beauty. And in some way, you participate in the glory that it puts on display for the whole world. Thus, you never feel so alive. You've never felt so insignificant, and you've never felt so alive. And that is what happens in worship. 
That's what it means to worship the true God. As you come before him, and as you learn about him more and more, what happens? Your, your picture of him gets grander and grander and grander. And you realize how far beyond your, your, your wildest comprehension this God is. And you never feel so insignificant as when you are in his presence. And yet, as you turn to the gospel, and as you turn to what God does for us in Christ, and that this God enters into a covenant with his people, and that this God stops at nothing in order to make us his own, and that we who are so insignificant before him are recipients of the sacrifice of his only begotten son, that son whom he loves, so much. We're swept up into this new realization. That's the the wonder of it all, that the God whom we need, the exact thing that we need, our sufficiency, the exact object for which our soul longs, he makes it his mission to glorify himself in saving us and welcoming us into his presence. And that is why gravity leads to gladness. That is why reverence in the gospel, leaves us, leads us to joy because we are not left to wonder how it is that God feels about us. We're not left to wonder that because he's shown it in Christ and he has stamped his name and he has staked his name and his glory upon our salvation so we don't need to wonder how it is that God feels about us. There's a quote from The Lord of the Rings stories, Sam says, to be highly esteemed by someone you highly esteem is the greatest thing in the world. To be highly esteemed by someone you highly esteem is the greatest thing in the world. And in Christ, God shows you how much he loves you. And so we're bold, we're confident. And you sang it this morning. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We sing that on the, on the heels of saying, how could it ever be that this God would do something for me? But we're, what we're filled with boldness, with, courage, with cur- courage in his presence. Not because of anything in us, but because of what he has done for us in Christ. In his presence, we never feel more insignificant, but we also never feel more Alive. He is our satisfaction. He's our greatest joy and treasure. He's the one who promises us eternal and endless pleasures at his right hand. To know all of these things and to say that something like joy would be inappropriate in worship is to not have tasted what it truly means to belong to this God. But at the same time, to do away with seriousness, to do away with Fear, holy fear and reverence would be to lessen the joy that we feel. You see, the, the, the less worthy of praise this God becomes, the, the less glorious he becomes, the less joy you will feel. The more glorious this God is, the, 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 more, the, the holier that he is, the more joy you will feel. And so we need to make sure that we're keeping both of those things present when we think about worship. And so we'll mention again tonight, as we mentioned at the outset, that worship is a a heavenly experience. And we really see uh, the joy 
that we have in worship through this. Not only is worshiping a foretaste of what we do in heaven. It's not only a picture of that. It's not, it's not only a foretaste. But really and truly, the Holy Spirit brings the future to the present so that when God's people are assembled for worship, truly it is a heavenly experience. So the time that we come together to worship God, to be in his presence, filled with reverence, filled with joy, we are joyfully reverent because that is what we will be for all eternity in the presence of God. We will be filled with wonder. We will be filled with reverence. We will be filled with awe. And we will be eternally joyful. So we take stock of what it says in scripture. Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Lasting joy. And that joy is experienced in his presence. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice O righteous. And shout for joy all you upright in heart. Psalm 16 is really moving this direction the entire time. But but notice how it weaves the truth of God into it. David is moved to gladness because he is understanding, because he is grasping who God is. Listen to what he says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply The drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol nor allow your Holy One to see corruption you make known to me the paths of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore in your presence there is fullness of joy. That is what worship is. We will experience that for all eternity. But now, here and now, as we worship God, in his presence, there is fullness of joy because we are taking stock in who God is. We know that it is right, that he is passionate about his glory because we are learning about him. We are learning doctrine. We are learning truth. And we are trying to to mine the depths of all that he has declared. So we're taking stock in who God is. And then we are looking at what he has done. And we are saying, look at how much this God loves us. So we're filled with boldness. We're filled with courage. And we say, he has staked his name on what he has done for us in Christ. So we revere him with a holy fear, but we rejoice in him because of what he has done for us in Christ. And he is exactly what we need, and he has bound his glory to our joy so that in his presence there is fullness of joy. Therefore, our hearts are glad. 
to be filled both with reverence and with joy for the glory of God and for the sake of his name in all of the world. God is king. Jesus Christ reigns now and forever. That's true whether we assent to it or not. But God welcomes us into this mission of glorifying himself so that we would give him all of the glory, so that we would trust in him as our security, our sufficiency, and our satisfaction. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled to be called your children. And we confess that we are not always the people that we ought to be. And before you and your presence, Father, we are so grateful for all that you have done. And we ask that you would glorify yourself. We ask that you would cause us to, to fall in love with your glory, the mission of, of your glory that you have set this world on, Father, that we would love that and that we would see that it is right and it is good that God is for God. Help us to love all of these things and to treasure your truth and your word. May you glorify yourself in us and may the whole world see your glory. We look forward to the day when Christ will come again to the glory of God the Father. In his name we pray, amen.